So we're looking at 1 John 2, 28 and 29. We said last week, if you remember, those verses are transitional verses. 28 is kind of a summary of what is in chapter 2. Verse 29 introduces us into, kind of adds a new subject. We know that the book of 1 John has some tests for believers to take. For example, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? We've seen that that's important. What do you believe about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That is kind of implicit, kind of hiding in every nook and cranny in the terrain of the book of 1 John. Uh, We've seen that the themes, uh, love, light, life, we've seen that one of the, we will see that one of the tests that John applies to believer to know if you're really, to know, we see that that's his theme, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, that you might know that you are saved. Do you love the brother? Do you love the brother and the sister too? You can't, you can't recognize hatred in your heart, for another brother or sister in Christ, and say that you're saved. We'll get it. The love test, that's the worst one. This one, when we get the love test, because everybody fails at love. Everybody fails at love. You give me about five minutes here, I I could have you all walking out on me. We all, we all, fail at love. But the test now is the practice of righteousness. Do you practice what you preach? (laughs) And the short, we know the answer to this. We know the answer is, does your life reflect the fact that you have been living all week long with Jesus? It's a two-letter word. Some of you think it's a three-letter word that begins with a letter in the alphabet more closely to the end, but the answer to this question is a two-letter word. What is the answer to this question? <laughs> Eeyore. No. 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 The, the correct answer is no. We would think that having the correct answer would get us a higher mark on the test. But if you answer no to this question, guess what? You failed. I've failed. Does your life, when you go to work tomorrow, let's just use this as a simple example. You're going to come to church today and spend an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, two hours, well, sometimes three hours if you include the eating of donuts. And you're going to go to work in the morning, and the expectation is is that people that you work with will take notice of the fact that you have been with Jesus. So that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with really the heart, the core of the human issue And it is the core of the human issue because it required 
Christ's death on the cross. There was no other way to deal with this problem than Christ incarnate, his death, and his resurrection. It is an extreme response. And God, after the fall in the Garden of Eden, you've heard me say this before, God was not under no further obligation towards man. He said it here. I'm going to put you in this paradise. You're going to rule and reign and have dominion over it. There's only one thing I ask of you. Somebody gives you $30 million. And they say, one thing. Here, here's a house. Here's a, somebody was telling me, Mark, I think, some guy bought a $24 million house on an island down in Florida. They're going to fix it up and sell it for $36 million. Man, if somebody gave you a $36 million house and they said, now here's the key to this closet, but I don't want you to use this key. The closet's on the 14th floor. It's by bedroom number 142. I don't want you to open that door. And what would you say? What would you say? I can do that. <laughs> you, can, you can live in any other room. It's your house. So one thing I ask you, don't, don't use this key to open that door. Middle of the night, you wake up and say, what's behind that door? You got all the other rooms. You, you got rooms you haven't even visited yet. Money you haven't even counted. And yet, what are you obsessed? You and I, well, I know, I would be obsessed with, there's got to be a reason. What does he know about what's behind that door that he doesn't want me to see? You open the door, the deal's off. Seems fair, doesn't it? What's unjust about that? Person's been very gracious to you. Gave you everything you said you wanted. Under one stipulation. Don't open that door. God was under no further obligation with man after man didn't keep his part of the deal. God could have said, done with it. Man would have been, could have been destroyed by God, not even left a greasy spot on the pavement of the universe. God would have been justified in doing what he did. Why, how, how are you going to argue with the Creator? And yet God says, I have a plan for this. Bob Saban said, on the way to Calvary, Christ created the world. It wasn't a second thought. We can't even, we can't, when we speak about God, we can't talk, even talk about first thoughts and second thoughts because he is. There's never been anything unknown to him. He doesn't wake up in one morning and say, Ha ha, I've got the solution to this thorny problem with Adam and Eve. So God could have just said, I'm done. But, and this is why we're saved by grace through faith, God decides to be gracious 
to us, and God decided to save some. You say, well, that's not fair. No, no, no. What's fair? What would have been right is to destroy every human being. He was on his way. How many know he was on his way to do that in the flood? But the Bible says that Noah found grace. That wasn't his wife's name. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God says, I'll start over. Eight souls. So, Going into court, you say, well, I'll take my chances in court. You know, when the feds indict you, they have like a 95% conviction rate. So you go to the lawyer, and you know what the lawyer tells you? He says, take whatever deal they offer you. And some fools will say, as we have in this whole scandal with the with the college thing, right? Some people are saying they're not taking the deal the feds offered them, they're going to court. Guess what? The feds don't like to be made fools of. The feds don't lose in court. The very fact that you got indicted means they have the goods on you. You say, well, I'll take my chances in court. You're, you're not in a good position to take your chances in court. And we've seen how this system has been leveraged at times for people that are truly innocent, but because this is the way the system works and they're facing 25 to 30 years, they'd rather take the five years in jail as a sure thing than to take their chances in court. You say, well, I'm going to take my chances in court with God. All right, so here, here let, let's move through this as much as we can, as quickly as we can. So, here it is. Here's Barclay. We, we saw this last week. The only way in which a man can prove that he is abiding in Christ is by the righteousness of his life. The profession a man makes will always be proved or disproved by his practice. That's not good. So you say, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You, you can add, this is, there's a long list. I don't do the things that I used to do anymore. Sing that verse song a hundred times and do the huckabuck. Glory to God, get victory, and go out to your car after church is over and have a flat tire and take the tire iron and beat all the glass out of your, your car because you say, here, I'm trying to do the right thing, go to church, and then God allowed me to have a flat tire on the parking lot? You, there's no way, and this is, the, this is why it's not addressed, there's no way that we can make light of the presence of indwelling sin in our lives. I have something living in me that has as its purpose and intention to kill me. If it could, and it can't, if it could kill who I am in Christ, it would. To choke out the very life of God that, 
that new birth, that new life principle that's planted in me before it even gets up through the soil of my life, even begins to grow. It's the thistles, the thorns, the choking weeds, the birds of the air, the hot sun, all of those things are bearing down on me and saying, you will not live. And then we read this, which says, you've got, you know, doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter how much you sing. Doesn't matter how much you speak in tongues. Are you, (laughs) this is John Owen again. If you're not involved in the business of killing sin, indwelling sin in your life, Know this, every day, indwelling sin does not take a break in our lives. It is about the business of killing you. Look, so here's another statement. As children of God, they're expected to pursue righteousness. Uh, I found this statement on the internet. The guy put his sermon notes up, didn't put his name on it. I, I couldn't find who wrote this. It's a good statement. He says, to my knowledge... All theologians, teachers, and pastors agree that loving God, loving your brother, here are the tests in John, loving God, loving your brother, not living in habitual sin, living our lives out of respect for the God who loved us is a proper and right life to live. I I don't think there's anyone here this morning that could disagree with that statement. Jesus paid it all. I make much of the death of Christ. What's the next line in the song. Jesus paid it all. I am under obligation. Because Jesus, because God, because the Father, on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross, sends the Holy Spirit and saves me. I couldn't save myself. I had no right to put God under obligation. And God comes before I'm born, if we want to read, really, Ephesians chapter 1, right? God says, you know what? You ain't any better than anybody else I got to pick from out there, but I choose you. Talk about messing with us. Talking about, talk about interfering with, and then people still persist in this whole idea of free will, that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. God placed something in your life, and he didn't ask your permission to do that. You say, well, when I went forward and I prayed the sinner's prayer and I shook the preacher's hand and I filled out the card, that's when I exercised my free will. There was something conceived in you long before that, that when it was formed to a certain point in your your life, it gave you the ability to respond. We love him. The Bible says what? Why do we love God? Because, Because like I'm, you know what, I don't know what the problem with other people is, but I just saw the light one day. And I love God because, you know, I guess I'm just smarter than other people. I guess other people are fools. No, we love him because why? 
He initiated this relationship with laser focus. Look, how many times does John use here in just this relatively short passage down through verse 10? Talks about practices righteousness, the practice of sinning, practices lawlessness, or to practice righteousness. So we talk, we we put forth this idea last week. We're kind of on this pendulum that swings back and forth. On the one hand, presumption. Um, I'm saved, and I know that I am. I'm saved. And I know that I am. I'm saved. And I know that I am. I, I'm so glad I know that I am. Oh, yes. Right? I didn't get off my diet this week. I went to the gym when I was supposed to. I ate the right food. What about next week? Oh, it was awful. What did, what did Andrew say when he, before he went to the doctor? He, the night before, he had eaten a whole bag of gummy bears. You know what? You eat a whole bag of gummy bears, guess what? Your blood sugar is going to spike. Hello. And the doctor is like, you're pre-diabetic. Well, yeah, on the basis of that, if you eat a whole bag of gummy bears while you're watching TV the night before, then you go to the doctor for a blood test, guess what? So here we go. We, we have... We have good weeks, we have bad weeks. We have good days, we have bad days. We have good hours, we have bad hours. We even, just in a matter of a few seconds, have you ever been around somebody they could go to zero to 60 in a nanosecond? Just a, <laughs> just a second before, they were saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized with fire, and now, what in the world? What took what set them off? Uh uh-huh, you preaching now. So because we didn't want to be left in despair last week, I left you with two things that we can be sure of. First of all, we know, hallelujah, praise God, thank you, Jesus. John, it's not talking about sinless perfection. He's not talking about eradicating sin. Now there are holiest movements and we still have some of this teaching around and and a lot of it is in old time Pentecostalism because they descended from holiness people that believe that the body of sin could be destroyed. They base that on Romans chapter 6 verse 6, the King James Version. The word there, Katargeo, K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O, is translated in the King James Version, destroyed. And so they said, the body of sin could be destroyed. If you got in a right relationship with Jesus, that you would not only not want to sin anymore, but you wouldn't sin. Newer translations of the Bible, the, the verse is, well, let's look there. Look, look with me, Romans 6.6. 6. This is the ESV. Probably the most accurate 
Uh, translation in English of the Bible is the New International Version. I'm using uh, the English Standard Version. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the better translation for the original word then was the idea of the body of sin is nullified or set aside. It has been put in a place of lesser direct influence. But the King James Version here uses the word destroyed. And as wonderful as the King James Version is, a lot of the things that people struggle with, particularly on this question of the power of indwelling sin and mortification, were, were based on less than good translations in the King James Version. So John is not teaching sinless perfection. Why would John say, as we said last week, I write these things unto you, little children, that you might not sin. But if you do sin, he says, but if you do sin, so the presumption is, you know, I've, I've never tried to stop smoking because I never started smoking. My, uh, my nephew, Jody's son, he's trying to stop smoking. And he posted something on Facebook the other day. He said, 16 days, he hasn't had a cigarette. Christie's dad, who was delivered and healed from cirrhosis of the liver and alcoholism, miraculously struggled to stop smoking. And he would, he would stand in that pulpit in the auditorium in there and say, there are times, he says, even though I haven't smoked for 40 years, he said, there are times when I get the itch to light a cigarette. Whoo! So John's presumption is you are not going to live a life where you don't need the forgiveness of the cross, the blood of the cross. I write these things unto you, little children, that you, you shouldn't sin. This is the ought, O-U-G-H-T, present in 1 John. These things you ought to do. We always, this is what you should do. How many know we always have a problem with what we should do? But if you do sin, he says we, we, including himself, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, advocate. Don't go into court without your lawyer. You say you're going to represent yourself in court. The man who represents himself in court has a fool for a client. You get that later. So he's, he's not militating for sinless perfection. That's good news. Secondly, he does give us the solution of the sin problem. We looked at this quickly, but look at it. 1 John 3.6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
There's the solution for the problem. If I have a sin problem in my life, it's because I've not spent enough time with Jesus. More time, here, more time spent with Jesus, this side of the scale, means less time sinning. Right? Less time spent with Jesus means what Christy encourages people. And really, I mean, how much less of a program can we have in this church to accommodate people's busy lives? We only have church once a week. <laughs> we only have church once a week. And the, there are people like, yeah, I just can't go to You should, here's the ought, you should make it a priority to be in church on Sunday mornings and recognize that every excuse in the book is going to throw itself in your way to keep you from being here. But it's because, you see, we, we don't have that desperation to be in the presence of Jesus. Just like God calling Adam in the cool of the evening. And God calls Adam, doesn't respond. Where are you? What's going on? Well, I was naked and I was afraid. The, lo the longer, you know, this, the story's told about the, the, the pastor who went and invited a, a visited a person in their, con in their congregation who hadn't been to church in a long while. This is, this is like a Spurgeon story, I think. So think, think Victorian England. So he goes into this little home of this little old lady, and he says, you have a, uh, I've, I've come to visit you today, and all of a sudden, uh, out off uh, the fireplace rolling on to the hearth was a, a, an ember. And he saw that, and they both looked at it, and as, the longer the ember stayed on the hearth, the, the cooler it got. You throw the ember back into the fire, and what does it do? It reddens back up again. And so the pastor got up, and he took the, the tongs and picked up that ember that had cooled off and put it back on the fire, then went, went and turned around, went back and sat down, and the lady said to him, I'll be in church next Sunday. We say that we love God. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We may spend some time on this. I've told you that before. My dad told me, he said, son, when you're preaching and the people get quiet on you, he says, you just need to set the notch on the plow a little bit lower. I think that was the right advice, but it hasn't gotten me anywhere. Look. Look, look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Now that's English Standard Version. That is also New International Version. In the King James Version, it says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those 
who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Why did the, the translators for the NIV and the ESV say, we're just going to shorten that phrase? Because here, here's, you want to hear the real truth? I feel like I'm an apologist for the Jehovah's Witness now. You want to hear what is really going on there? The phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, was not in verse 1. It was in verse 4. Look, keep, keep reading in the passage. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done. You need to underline those four, four words. For God has done. So we, we're not begging God to do something more for us. God has already done this. He's already shown us, given us the path. He's, provi- he, he's named the problem and provided the solution. Spend more time with me. You spend more time with me, the sin thing will lessen. You spend more time with sin, then the Jesus thing is going to lessen. And, and here's some more good news. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You're just, you're just making your life miserable because Jesus isn't going anywhere. I'd, people crack me up all the time when they say, you know, we kicked God out of the schools when they, when they said you couldn't pray in school anymore. You're not kicking God out of any place. I guarantee you, even the atheist agnostic kids in school pray when exam time comes. Oh God, if there is a God, help me on this chemistry test. You can't stop people from praying. And whatever that was, that moment of silence or whatever they used to do in school, really, come on. That was an opportunity to pray, but it didn't mean anybody was praying. In my distress. And you know what? Jesus lives in your house. And you just, like, sorry I came in so late last night, Jesus. <laughs> but I, I was having a party. Jesus is like, yeah, I was concerned about that. What do you want for breakfast? You're like, you mean, yeah, I. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better or worse, until death do us part. That's the covenant making God that I know. So you come home and Jesus is still there. Look, for God has done, look at verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So this, this is already a done deal. How, what, what did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. But go back to verse 1. What does verse 1 say? There is now therefore no condemnation. 
So if you're going to claim verse 1, I'm, I am not under the condemning sentence of sin in my life because of Jesus Christ. And you should do that. You should exalt in that. You should glory in that. Who's that guy? He played center on the, on, uh, the Chiefs team last week, the football and all that confetti came down on the ground. Here's a, this guy. He must weigh like 350 pounds. He got down in the confetti and did a snow angel in the confetti. We should do snow angels in the confetti. Woohoo! I have been set free from the law of sin and death. What I tried to do through the law and my weakened flesh, God has done in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. But the person who professes freedom from the law of condemning sin now must do his homework on the mortification of indwelling sin. There is a difference there between condemning sin and indwelling sin. I told you to look at verse 4. You condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the King James Version translator said, this is too shocking, just like they didn't want to include Jesus and his conversation with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. They didn't want to include that in the Gospel of John because they thought that that was too antinomian. The King James Version translators, they didn't want to just say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They wanted the ad who walked not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, which is in verse 4. But it's, if, 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 that, if you add that to verse 1, there's no angels in the confetti. But just because we celebrate the deliverance from condemning sin doesn't mean that we don't have work to do when it comes to indwelling sin. John Owen, 16th century Puritan, indwelling sin always abides while we are in this world. Therefore, it is always to be mortified. You will never experience, I will never experience sinless perfection in this life. So that's my job every day. Now, I love this statement by Robert Law. The true believer possesses a truceless antagonism to sin. A truceless antagonism. I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've got this problem. But Every day, in some way, I'm going to resist evil. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you that you gave your only begotten Son. Thank you, Father, for what generations of human beings struggled with. The law of sin 
taking advantage of the weakness of our flesh. Thank you, Father. You, you have accomplished the solution. Help us to exult in this solution, to know the way, to know the manner in which the righteousness of Christ is applied to our lives. And help us to be about the business of killing indwelling sin in us before it kills us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.